Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. Gamble on, fellas. Gamble on. Welcome to a special edition of Gamble On, the weekly gambling podcast presented by usbets.com. I'm Eric Raskin, US Bets Managing Editor and Media Director, and while I'm not joined right now by our senior analyst, Pulitzer Prize finalist John Brennan, you will hear his voice plenty on this podcast. After 105 episodes across just over two years, this week we're highlighting some of our favorite clips from the Gamble On interview, featuring the biggest names and most knowledgeable insiders from across the gambling world. We'll go through these selections chronologically. So we start nearly two years ago, way back in September 2018, when legal sports betting was just starting to go live outside Nevada. Here's one of our favorite recurring guests making his first appearance, semi-pro sports better Brad Feinberg. So, Brad, every gambler has stories. Uh, I'm curious if you could give us uh, your all-time biggest win and also your most crushing bad beat. My most crushing bad beat is easy, and it's funny. And if you speak to any gambler, or at least any gambler I know, every single one remembers the, 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 the I mean, I could, I could, I mean, God, I could, I could tell you stories. You could be on for the next ten hours of the bad beats. Uh, Scott Van Pelt would be jealous. Um, I probably had them every one of those. But my worst one ever. It was, I'd say, ten years ago, give or take. Okay. And I did, I did a. $2,000 parlay to pay $1.2 million. Okay. Whoa. And it was a seven game money line parlay of all huge underdogs. Okay. I remember the biggest one was the, this was when the, the this was years and years ago that <laughs> the Rams were like all in seven and they were at the Saints getting like eight to one odds. And that was one of the games I put in my parlay. Again, I do these. I thought they were all, I thought every one of these had value. Each individual play I thought had value. And that one, that was the big one that was getting like eight to one odds. And this is before, now you can do live betting. And, you know, you can bet, you know, if people don't know, you can bet on, at least on my offshore accounts, you can bet during the game. Right. Um, and get out of, like, for example, let's suppose you have a parlay, $100 to pay 260 and you won the first game, and the second game is looking good, but you don't want to, like, you know, or take the game like the Eagles-Falcons game last week. You can 
hedge out of that and say, you know what, I, I, I think if you had the Falcons, I think Eagles are going to win, and you can, whatever the live betting is, you can lock in, you know, something by betting the opposite side. This is way before those days, okay? So basically, you're either going to win or you were going to lose. <laughs> and six of the six of the games are uh, had won, or I knew, you know, knew we were going to win, and everyone was getting at least three to two or higher, and that's why again, it it, it paid it paid one point two million dollars. The last game. I remember the. I still remember to this day. There was the quarterback for the Miami Dolphins was a guy named Cleo Lemon, <laughs> and the Dolphins were zero and eight or zero and seven. It was like week eight of the NFL season, and they were beating the Bills. And I had the Dolphins with the money line. They were beating them ten to two with ten minutes left in the game, ten to two. And I knew I had the other the other games. They were all winning easily, and I knew they were going to win. And I remember going up and taking the longest shower in my entire life. Cause I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't watch it. Like, you know, this was life changing money. Right. I couldn't, I couldn't watch it. So I took like, I swear it was like a 45 minute shower. And I just, I'm like, all right, I'm just going to find out if I won or lost. So I logged into my account and I see, you know, there's not seven figures in there. <laughs> so I see, I see, I, I see that I see that I lost and they lost 13 to 10. And what's funny is I became obsessed again, way before, like you could watch every game on TV or whatnot. And like, I was able to find on inside the NFL, they showed highlights of that game. And Ted Ginn, when it was 10-10, returned the kickoff for a touchdown to give Miami a lead 17-10. And they called the worst block in my back penalty Ugh. I've seen in my life. Yeah. I still remember it. It still sticks with me to this day. Um, so I would say that was definitely, um, I, I lost this part. I mean, that was, that was the toughest, you know, the toughest beat. I mean, I guess had a lot of them in terms of good wins. Um, yeah, let's, 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 let's finish the question yeah, on, a, was, on a happier note. Give me, one. give me, give me yeah. a fun win. <laughs> I'll give you a fun win. Um, Again, I, I do everything based on odds, and I would encourage other people to do that too. What do I mean by that? Let's suppose um, you think something has a one in ten chance of happening. You think it's going to lose, right? Nine out of ten times. Right. But if someone's offering you fifteen to one odds, you should make that bet a hundred out of a hundred days because if you do it over time, you're going to get a nice return on your investment. Right. Okay. But you, I put in losing bets all the time, where I know that over the long run it'll still be a profitable bet, even though I think it's going to lose that isolated time. This was, I think it was 2004. The Detroit Tigers were 300 to one to win the pennant in um, baseball. This is, it was Justin Verlander's rookie season, I believe. And I had a nice $500 bet on that one, which was a, that was a nice hit. Uh, They ended up going to the world series. I didn't have them to win the world series. I had them to win the pennant. And they played the uh, they lost to the Cardinals in the World Series, but that was a a very nice hit that I you know that I won in terms of uh, a future again betting on something I thought would lose, but I thought the true odds on that team should have been maybe closer to 100 to one right. to win the pennant, and I got 300 to one, so I made the bet knowing you know I still thought it had value, and um, you know it won. Right, and I and I think that might have been '06. I think it's uh, yeah, it was something like yeah, it was. It was like and they, I think it was '06. I actually think you. Right. I think you are right. I think it was. I think it was 2006. Yeah. Anyway, but yeah, that was that was in terms of like big like 
big hits, big long shot things. That was that was definitely oh, you know, another one that was really good was and this was a again, being at the right place, right time. When the, it would be hard to do this in today's time, but when the when the uh Celtics signed uh Ray Allen uh or, or they traded for Kevin Garnett and got Ray Allen and they did that, you know, they had their whole big three thing. Mm-hmm. One of my offshore sites was like slow in adjusting the line on the Celtics to win the title. And uh, I was able to, to, to really hit that one pretty good. Nice. And they, they beat the Lakers in, uh, in six games that year. We've had our share of notable politicians on the podcast. And here's former New Jersey State Senator Ray Lesniak celebrating with us the start of legal sports betting in his state, a development in which he played a key role. Uh, yeah, Senator, I just, I just want to ask, what's your uh, kind of your own background on gambling? Uh, I'll give you the free plug. I, I did see you uh, bet on France to win the World Cup, uh, one of the first bets made at Monmouth Park in June. And uh, actually, you, uh, it was the first. It was the first winning bet. Murphy, <laughs> Murphy cut, cut in line. He, he, but he bet Germany, so I cashed the first winning bet. <laughs> yes, uh, Governor Phil Murphy is a former U.S. ambassador to Germany, so it's sort of understandable why he would pick that. Aside from them being a favorite. Well, and you know, let me get let me get my plug in. I won a human rights award uh, in uh, the Memorial de Caen, the Human Rights Museum in in Normandy, in France. So I had a little bit of affinity for for my choice as well. Yeah, very good. So, so some, tell us if it's something you enjoyed growing up. I, I think you said you used to play the ponies a little bit, or what kind of gambling uh, interested you? Uh, or, or interested yeah, you? more more than a little bit. My dad was a big horse player. Uh, we had a train. There was a train that ran every Saturday to Monmouth Racetrack from Elizabeth. He would go on that train with forty dollars to bet. He would bet twenty dollars to win on a horse in a race. Hook that up with a twenty dollar double. If that horse in the first race lost, he'd go back in the train and wait for everybody to go home. <laughs> but if that won, he would have a great time and a great party. So, yeah, we've uh, my my dad and I spent a lot of time uh, betting on the ponies and going up to Saratoga and Monmouth Racetrack. So it's a and I used to bet for take bets from for him to our lo- local grocery store uh, to bet on the horses. So yeah, I'm well ingrained in. Uh, in, in betting on the horses and, uh, and, you know, I see, I saw the enjoyment that people get from it. And most, most importantly, the economic benefits that go along with it, that the state of New Jersey was being deprived of. Well, your dad taught you responsible gambling, uh, and all seriousness, that's, uh, that's a, that's a good thing for, for you and for everybody. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, but, but well, let me mention one thing in terms of you know, the anti-gambling people. And I understand those concerns and, you know, uh, some of this revenue needs to go for, for those programs. But but the most dangerous form of gambling is the lottery. Uh, you know, I live close a few houses down from low-income housing uh, uh, development, and right across the street from it is a convenience store. People go there lined up to buy lottery tickets that they can't afford either. So, um, you know, it's something that we have to look at on a, at a generic basis and provide opportunities and treatment, but we shouldn't deprive people who want to gamble responsibly the uh, opportunity to enjoy it. Shortly after his controversial third place finish in the 2019 DraftKings Sports Betting National Championship, we had professional better Rufus Peabody on the show. Here, he sounds off on an unsavory element of the industry. 
I saw some recent tweets from you in response to the new Showtime documentary series about sports betting. Uh, you are clearly not a fan of Vegas Dave uh, and their decision to use <laughs> him in the series. Uh, I'm, is your opinion that all touts are, are bad and, and con artists, uh, or is your reaction specific to this individual, this Vegas Dave character? Well, I think Vegas Dave is just the most egregious offender of in, in the tout world because he, he you know, he, he'll buy futures tickets on every team before the season begins. And then later on in the season, be like, ah, I had 50 to one for a huge amount of money on this one team. And, you know, he'll quote a record. He basically plays a Martingale system in Major League Baseball, meaning he'll just double up on, uh, you know, if his bet loses, he'll double. And if it loses, he'll double again and then say, oh, well, this is the system. That's one win. And so he has a record of like 120 wins and four losses. But the four losses are all 60, <laughs> 60 units or something. So, so I mean, uh, but, but more generally, I think the tout industry, um, I, I don't want to say that all touts are losing betters. But if, if you're a winning tout, it becomes, uh, the business model becomes unsustainable because there are people out there that will see your information move on those picks and basically blow up the market, move the lines. And so the average customer won't be able to get down at the lines that you actually sent out. And so in, in efficient markets and these markets, I guess, you know, the bigger markets, NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball are pretty efficient. Uh, you know, if, if you're getting a worse price, that's the difference between, you know, winning and losing. And so in general, like anytime you see some handicapper or tout, claim that they've been doing this for 30 years and you know serving the community for 30 years that means that they're they've been generally losing or best break even for 30 years and so especially after fees i, I don't think it ever pays to to buy picks in case you're wondering yes rufus peabody is his real name this next clip comes from another pro sports better one who goes by a pseudonym Captain Jack Andrews. We had Captain Jack on right after U.S. Bets published his article on the value of sharp money. Can you elaborate on that recent article you did? Um, you talk about how sports books uh, should take bets from sharps. That's beneficial to them. That seems counterintuitive probably to most people. So, so how do they benefit from taking uh, those bets? Right. So, you know, and that it was a little bit of a controversial article in that I'm sure a lot of sports book operators saw it or read it and just laughed it off because you know in the end it's not profitable to bet on, to to book only sharp betters. However, if you can use that sharp action as a portion of your overall handle and you can use it in a way to direct you how to shape your market, uh, it can be very beneficial. Um, I kind of touched on on three points, and the first was that it's only fair to to book sharp action, and that's the that's the point I made that kind of appeals to the betters as well as to the general public. Um, you know, if if you're offering us to come in and take a shot at you, then when somebody comes in and takes a shot at them and has some brain power behind it, they don't want to take that action. That just seems very un-American. It just seems just a bad way to do business, uh, a bad way to foster. Uh, new customers coming on board if they think they might, you know, one day be limited or told they can't bet here anymore. They they probably don't even want to come in the door. Um, secondly, sharp money is predictive. In other words, it can tell you where the market's going to end up. You know, the market throughout the day, uh, the sports betting day, is is always moving, uh, going one way or the other, and usually going in one direction only as as more and more sharp bettors get their money down um, and a sportsbook can use that sharp money as sort of a, 
uh, barometer of where the market's going and how fast it's going there. Uh, if they miss some kind of news that the sharp betters know, uh, if, you know, those sharp betters are going to race to the window, so to speak, and get their money down. Um, it's a good sign to say, hey, wait a minute, what did we miss? Why is this guy betting into this line this way? Um, and then the third thing is the reason that they should permit sharp money to an extent is because it's going to come in anyway. You know, these sharp bettors were well versed in kind of the, the art of betting. Uh, we know how to get the money down. We know how to kind of uh, get around the system, so to speak. Uh, we've been doing it for years and years trying to bet in these underground markets um, and now in legalized markets, you know, why not just accept their wagers to an extent and uh, that way you don't have to deal with all of the capital expenses of administration and trying to prevent all these different leaks of people coming in through the window when the doors closed. This next guest was particularly thrilling for us to have on, as we believe Gamble On was the very first podcast to feature James Holzhauer once he started to become known to America as Jeopardy James. Here's a bit of our conversation with the pro sports better who moonlighted as a game show phenomenon. So, uh, getting back to uh, to Jeopardy, uh, the the all in move on the daily double is becoming one of your calling cards, and it speaks to both your willingness to gamble and your confidence that you can build your score back up if you happen to zero out. So, two questions: Do you feel most Jeopardy contestants aren't playing optimal strategy with their daily double betting? And also, what does it feel like when you have five thousand or ten thousand dollars built up and you risk it all and get a question that you don't know the answer to? Uh, so for the first question, you know, I've worked out what I thought was the optimal strategy for me going in, and, and I'm playing as close to that as I can. But you know, I don't know if that's the optimal strategy for everyone. They might uh, not feel confident with a certain category that the daily double is in, or maybe they can't focus on the trivia question when they have. I'm going to do air quotes here, $10,000 at risk. And, you know, really, I think those are just kind of points on a scoreboard until you actually win the game and it goes to your bank account. But, uh, you know, they call them dollars on the show. And I think there's a real psychological barrier for some people. And if you don't think you can answer a question correctly because you're being distracted by that, you shouldn't be betting that much. Um, right. For the second part of the question, I, uh, there, there's already been a game that aired where I had 8,400. I lost it all on the first daily double, but I kept my composure. I built up, I think it was 7,200, bet it all on the next daily double because I knew that was the right move, and I came back and won the game. And I really feel like if you have faith in your analysis, that one single loss should never shake your confidence in yourself. And, and uh, James, playing off that daily double strategy and also the fact that you mentioned you get uh, frustrated when a coach doesn't uh, kind of make the right decision. Um, in what ways do you see casual sports bettors leave money on the table? And I don't know if that frustrates you, too, but I imagine you're not a big fan of parlays. And, you know, are there other betting mistakes that kind of make you cringe when uh, you, you see that uh, either the same better makes the same mistakes over and over or such a large pool of uh, players are always making the same mistakes? You know, I think there's a bit of a stigma attached to parlays. It doesn't really need to be there. There's nothing inherently wrong mathematically with betting a parlay, unless, of course, you're the type of person who always hedges the last leg. You know, if you're going to hedge the last leg of your 10-team parlay, just bet a nine-teamer instead. Um, but, you know, of course, most people who are betting at the sportsbook aren't winning players, and no system is ever going to overcome the house edge for them. I would say that much bigger mistakes are people who buy picks from touts or the type of people who will bet a team and then if their team gets out to an early lead they'll automatically try to middle in the end game you know if you really believe that your side was the right one at the start of the game just because they're up 10 nothing you shouldn't have to change uh sides in the middle 
Straight from one big-name guest to another, one of poker's greatest ambassadors, Daniel Negreanu, joined us just before the 2019 World Series of Poker got underway. You know, we've been asking this question since about 2012, but uh, uh, how optimistic uh, would you say you are you know, currently that online poker is eventually going to make that big, strong comeback in the U.S. with uh, you know, solving liquidity problems and compacts and all that? Well, for me, I think you know, what we need to do is piggyback sports because sports has gotten legislation that's been very favorable to legalize sports betting, and it's certainly much more popular. I mean, poker's kind of a niche sport, niche game where you know, people, not as many people are going to be involved in that as sports betting. So if sports betting sites start to proliferate across the country, um, they may want to add a component to keep you know, players on the site, which would be something along the lines of online poker. So I think piggybacking on that type of legislation is our best shot. Um, you know, I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon because, um, again, po- uh, sports betting just can be a lot more lucrative for these companies. They don't have as much incentive to you know, uh, offer poker as well. Along those lines, is, is, it, is it frustrating to you at all as a poker guy to see how much more quickly and easily things have taken off with, with sports betting than they did with online poker? I don't know if I'd use the word frustrating. I do think it is kind of silly when we think of America being the land of the free. But, you know, you can't sit on your toilet and play on a laptop. Whereas in Russia, you know, the big bad Russia, you know, people can play online in a lot of other countries. So kind of silly, really, that the government is not seeing the value of you know, getting on board here from a tax perspective and, you know, having online gaming be regulated because it's going to happen anyway, as we've seen. Even after Black Friday, there were sites that popped up, unregulated sites, and and people are always going to find a way to play. Former American Gaming Association Vice President Sarah Slane went out on her own launching Slane Advisory in 2019, and she joined us to talk about some ways sports betting was evolving at the time. Had you started this venture a year ago, you would have been meeting with a lot of potential clients who probably wouldn't have had a whole lot of understanding of the sports betting industry. Are you expecting that still to be the case to a degree now, or are people in the sports and media and tech worlds significantly more knowledgeable about the basics of sports betting now? Um, I think that there is still a huge education curve that that um, is taking place and about business objectives and about the industry writ large and who the people are and who the players are and what their objectives are. And, you know, I think because this is rolling out on a state-by-state basis, it gets, you know, that much more complicated um, because it is not a one-size-fits-all. So um, I do think that there is uh, a lot of need for uh, that help and guidance right now. Okay. And uh, Sarah, you know, Eric mentioned you'll be likely working with professional sports leagues. Um, you've definitely gained some national renown for your sometimes colorful opposition to integrity fees for the <laughs> leagues being mandated by state legislators. But, but I think it's fair to say that you also found common ground with the leagues on some issues. Yeah, and, and that's I think, you know, everyone across the board from MLB to NBA, you know, good relationships outside of um, those things that we disagree on. But, you know, for the large part, and I've said this all the time, is we do agree on 95% of what it is that we're all trying to accomplish. And, you know, they want to see uh, a thriving sports betting market. We want to see the illegal market shut down. We want to see consumers move from the illegal to the legal regulated market. And, you know, I think we both recognize that uh, this is only going to be able to be accomplished through partnership. I think the area in which we disagree is 
NBA and MLB would like to see things done in, in statute and not through contract necessarily when it comes to the integrity fee and um, the mandatory data rights. So, you know, I, I do think that, again, you know, hopefully that there'll be more alignment as more, as more markets start to open up and more opportunities present themselves. Shortly before the 2019 NFL season began, FanDuel president and COO Kip Levin joined us, and we asked him about the popularity of betting on a different sport. On the heels of the equal pay chance at the end of the Women's World Cup, I'm curious how women's sports are performing for you as betting markets. We just had the Women's World Cup. We have Wimbledon going on right now, where the women tend to be a comparable TV draw in America to the men. Are you seeing any telling patterns about your customers' interest in betting on women's sports? I, I mean, the the interest in the Women's World Cup, I'll just talk specifically to that because I've spent okay. more time looking at that. We're obviously still in the middle of Wimbledon, but I would say that it dramatically exceeded everybody's expectations. Um, you know, I think, and it's interesting, right? We have guys that are, you know, in our, our risk in our trading team who sell of our lines, who build the markets and so on. You know, they've come from our international businesses in, in Europe and Australia. You know, th- they, you know, they've never seen anything like it, right? Hmm. You know, when you look at our businesses elsewhere around the world. Um, and it's really exciting. I think it's really sort of telling to the popularity of women's sports here. Um, but I, I would say, look across, I looked at some of the numbers across our global business, um, again, between Europe here um, in New Jersey and Australia and the Women's Cup uh, semifinal between the U.S. and England was the largest um was the largest women's sporting event in terms of total turnover um, in the history of Patty Power Betfair, which has now been renamed as the Flutter Group. Um, and the, the women's final was um, slightly less. Um, obviously, the England-U.S. matchup drew a lot of interest in, in the U.K. as well, um, but you know, by, a, by a small margin. So they were the top two event, women's sporting events, team sports events um, in the history of our global business. Hmm. It's it's interesting. It's it's good to hear that it's doing well. I mean, I suppose one could wonder, you know, if if the Women's World Cup was taking place overlapping with NFL season, would it get totally lost in the shuffle? That maybe it's uh, it benefits somewhat from occurring when it does. But that's still that's still good to hear that it uh, that it's driving so much business for you. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I I wouldn't bet on that. I mean, it was um, it was definitely a huge draw, and I think. You know, I think if you had it, you know, in the U.S. time zones and in prime time mm. here, it could have been even bigger. So, um, so again, we were we were really excited to see it, and a, a testament to the, you know, um, the, to the the abilities of the, the U.S. women's team. I think they really were, you know, obviously phenomenal, and um, uh, you know, drew huge national interest. Dr. David J. Chow is best known as Pro Football Doc on Twitter, where his real-time injury insights help sports bettors and fantasy players decide what to do. He came on Gamble On right after an accumulation of injuries led Indianapolis Colts quarterback Andrew Luck to retire. Yeah, Dr. Uh, obviously, Andrew Luck's uh, retirement is the talk of the football world in the past week. Um, uh, there's a long list of pretty specific injuries that he has suffered. And I'm kind of curious, uh, and this may be the same one, I'm not sure, but is there one of these that, you know, based on the information that you do have, would probably be the most painful? And is there uh, another one or maybe the same that would be kind of the most dangerous and the, the biggest reason that he might have been smart, smart to retire? 
Well, I mean, uh, you know, first thing I have to say is, uh, you know, I wish Andrew the best, but uh, he's kind of costing me my Super Bowl pick for fun. <laughs> uh, I, I had, you know, uh, I don't have a rooting interest per se, but just looking at it objectively, why I was very high on the Colts. They made the playoffs last year. They're a young rising team and they return all 22 starters or they did 11 starters on both sides of the ball. I mean, so first of all, it's very unusual to return all 22 starters. And uh, they had that. And they seem to be on a trajectory up. So I was really high on them. But now, who, who knows, right? Uh, as far as, you know, your question about retirement, boy, you know, if you want to be as safe as possible, you absolutely should retire. And you shouldn't play the game of football. I tell everyone, you know, Playing football is like riding a motorcycle. It's more dangerous than driving in a car. Uh, I tell parents that for kids and athletes. I've told many a time, uh, let's say on a typical knee issue, I'll say, what, what's the best, you know, doc, what's the best thing to do for my knee? You want to know the best thing? Like, yeah. I said, lose a hundred pounds and quit playing football. <laughs> like, no, no, no. You know what I mean? You know, the best thing for me to do and play football. Okay. Well then that's where it is. So, you know, from a health perspective, Football is not a contact sport. It is a collision sport, right? And so there's that. Now, with that being said, I don't know what Andrew Luck's absolute ankle injury is or, you know, it doesn't seem like the Colts have told us either. It obviously has morphed over five-plus months. I actually don't see that as an injury that he could not play through. Certainly, you've seen him in pregame warm-up after, before the second game, where he looked pretty good, where they said, well, maybe he still can't roll out and do everything. He's going to be in some pain. If you read my article through my Twitter timeline, it's up there, or, or Google Pro Football Doc and Andrew Luck, you'll see my explanation of it. I am not calling Andrew Luck soft. Here's what I'm saying. He kind of told us, that this was possible. Not that I predicted it. I did not predict it. But he's being true to his word. So what did he say and what happened? First of all, I said, look, this is an injury that has been morphing over five months. Whether calf, high ankle-ish, bone this, that, the other, the Colts were still getting new opinions right up until the last week or so. But something that's lingered for five months is it going to get better in another couple of weeks with rest and altered rehab? So I was saying if he was going to play week one, he was going to have to play through pain. And quite honestly, if he sat out week one, that probably is going to extend to week two, three, four, who knows? Now, the other side of the equation is what has Andrew Luck told us? He has said, and I'm paraphrasing, I don't have all the quotes in front of me, um, the shoulder took a lot out of me. I learned a lot about the shoulder. I learned to listen to my body. I'm not going to push through. You can't rush the process. There's no substitute for doing the right way. The shoulder was really hard on me. And he has, quote, what? Vowed not to do that again. So if you put those two things together, what's shocking is here's a guy who told us how he felt, and he actually executed it. Right. I mean, instead of, you know, a lot of times you get guys that go, yeah, I know I said that, but you know, here's the excitement of the season. I'm just going to suck it up and go. But he actually was a man of his word. I think he told us 
And if you, I wish I was smart enough to have put it all together ahead of time. Right. <laughs> um, but looking at it, you could see where he, he laid it out and followed through. Before he moved to Connecticut to go to work for ESPN, Daily Wager host Doug Kazarian was a Las Vegas-based journalist, and he had some interesting insights on the spread of legal sports betting's impact on Vegas. Yeah, you know, Doug, there was some speculation about whether Las Vegas is going to be hurt by losing that, you know, decades-long near monopoly on sports betting. Um, and if you look at the numbers in state just in New Jersey, they're really strong in the first year. Uh, but so are Nevada. So, you know, as a former resident out there, um, did you have any question as to whether Las Vegas could retain its full status as the sports betting power of the world? And, uh, and do you think that question's already completely ended and, and they won that game? I have been, since day one of legalization, 100% in the camp that Vegas will be helped by the legal legalization of sports betting because of a couple things. One is only a couple times a year, like Super Bowl, March Madness, maybe NFL opening weekend, something like that. Do people go to Vegas with the, with the prioritization of sports betting? Usually it's conferences, um, parties, pool parties, uh, just gaming, couples weekend getaway, Whatever. It's always like sports betting supplemental to the, to the option. It's mostly table games, right? That drives the handle for these casinos. And the people I spoke to and all agreed is as long as if sports betting is a larger part of someone's daily behavior when they're not visiting Vegas, back in their homes of Montana, Texas, whatever, because of legalization, and then they go to Vegas and they're there for a couple's getaway or a bachelor party or a conference, if they're already used to betting on sports, then they're going to bet sports when they're there. So if they're already doing it and it's part of their daily behavior, that's a win for Vegas. So I think the handle is going to go up in, uh, in sports for sports betting in Vegas after legalization. And it's just become more commonplace. Look at shows like Daily Wager, media companies. It's going to become more ever-present like in our day-to-day life. That So when they're, t- when they're traveling, they're going to want to bet when they travel to those states. And if Nevada is the state, then so be it. We've only had one pro sports Hall of Famer on the show, longtime NFL kicker Morton Anderson. We caught up with him in Las Vegas at the G2E convention in 2019, and because this interview was done in person in a crowded convention hall, the sound is quite a bit different from our usual interview clips. Apologies also for my extremely hoarse voice, as clearly I was partying a little too hard on this trip. Morton, I want to follow up. Uh, if anybody heard last week's uh, episode, I talked to I had talked to Amani Toomer, the Giants wide receiver, mm-hmm. and um, he kind of confirmed what my sense has been covering pro athletes since the 1980s, which is uh, uh, gamblers will not believe generally how little athletes know about gambling while they're True. playing. Uh, he said even after he retired after a long career, uh, he had to be taught exactly how a point spread worked. Uh, after having played all those years in the NFL, yep. and I think some of that's true. Now you you played with the Giants, kind of a laid back culture, uh, button down. Uh, you play with a half dozen teams. Um, uh, in your experience for yourself, and then also for your teammates, uh, how much awareness was there about gambling, money lines, you name yeah, it? Very, very little. And it, it's funny that there was this false sense, this notion that oh, you're kicker, so people must have been trying to bribe you, try to uh, get you to throw the game for money. And it, literally, I can say in 25 years, and I played longer than anybody. Uh, let alone, uh, you know, besides George Bland, I played more games than anybody. In none of those 382 regular season games was I ever approached by anybody who was going to was trying to to affect the game uh, by bribing uh, bribing a player that I'm aware of. And so, you're right. Uh, 
uh, Amani was a, a teammate of mine with the Giants, great great player, and we lived in this uh, ignorant bliss, you know. Right. Just was never really a priority for us. We were much more interested in making the process of the, the preparation for the game as powerful as possible, and uh, really didn't have any time uh, to to even focus on that part, you know. Right. So so it was never really anything that was even brought up either. Right. And but so even uh, you know nobody was bribing you or anything like that but was it ever just in the back of your mind a sort of a form of pressure thinking no. besides obviously you've got your own pressure as a place kicker it's important to make that kick but do, does it ever, does it ever cross your mind if people have money riding on, on this no or, never no, thought really and I would have guys job. You know, I've had guys come up to me afterwards and go you cost me a lot of money I said well you, you <laughs> poor better you know <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> what are you doing yeah. and you, you know and I say hey you won me a lot of money I say where's my half you know so I could I could play it any way I wanted <laughs> so you know just never crossed my mind never really entered into the equation at all uh, about you know, pressure only happens anyway when your skill set doesn't match the task. That's when you feel the pressure. And so we were I was focused as a player really on just trying to maximize those short times I was out there. Yeah. Didn't really think about the ramifications. I was trying to win the game. Here's something a little different. Las Vegas insider and publisher Anthony Curtis talking about a lucrative venture he was long ago banned from participating in, blackjack card counting. So uh, Eric tells me, Anthony, that you uh, know more than a little bit about uh, uh, card counting. And you know, obviously for the casual gambler, um, there's such a mystique involved there and how that works. And can you just describe a little bit about what the dance is like between a casino and a, and a card counter? Yeah. Well, you know, card counting itself is, uh, it sounds really sexy, but it's pretty boring. Uh, <laughs> you, know, you basically sit there and you do a bunch of, a bunch of uh, you know, mental gymnastics and math in your head. It's kind of like going up and down a number line, really. But then there are some conversions you have to make and, and bring up some indice numbers. But you're doing all this in your head and you're playing the game. And you're, and you're first of all, getting yelled at by other customers who, uh, who don't understand what you're doing and telling you that you play like shit. Uh, and, and then you're, you know, you're trying to stay under the radar with the casinos. You know, that's the dance you're talking about. So I've always said, you know, playing blackjack for a living is, is equal parts uh, art and uh, science and arts. And the science is actually what I just described, learning how to do it the art is getting away with it. And that's just looking like a general rube. It's just looking like you're having a time. It's, it's, you know, drinking a Heineken while you play. It's, you know, ogling the, the cocktail waitress. It's chatting with the pit boss. It's, you know, not getting too mad when you lose or too excited when you win. It's, uh, it's, it's just a big old act, as we call it. It's, uh, it's camouflage and an act. Yeah, I, I recall being uh, with you in Vegas one time where we were sort of standing in the vicinity of a blackjack table and you sort of told me, watch this, watch how close they descend if I get any closer than this. How, how long has it been since you uh, were able to play a hand of blackjack in Vegas? Uh, you know, I haven't, I've hardly played a hand of blackjack in Vegas in, jeez, man, going on, going on 15 years now probably. Okay. You know, every <laughs> once in a while I just go, and, and the longer it goes, the less, the less I'm known. And, you know, the more I can do, and I can sit down and play for small stakes. But, you know, they have the wrong impression that, like, I'm, I'm an ATM or something, or they're an ATM to me. I can go up and just extract money at will. It's, you know, it's nothing like that. If I sit down and play at a table, I'm, you know, I'm just a little over 50% to come out ahead. Um, and, you know, one time I, I was doing something for a documentary, and they wanted to play with live money. And I said, well, if it's okay with the, with the bosses, and they're like, absolutely not. We will not play for live money. You can film it for live money, but at the end, we'll settle up and we'll go back to, to zero. So we're not doing it for real. I lost 17 hands in a row. 
<laughs> I looked at the guy, I just laughed. I go, see, you know, so I mean, it's, um, they overreact. There's, there's absolutely an overreaction. One of the biggest industry stories just prior to the pandemic hitting was the controversial million dollar DFS football win of a former bachelorette contestant. Here's one of our most frequent guests, Roto Grinders Dan Bach, breaking down the situation for us. In a court of law, you have to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. From everything you know about this Jade Tanner DraftKings case, do you feel like the evidence is there beyond a reasonable doubt to say that there was either collusion or multi-accounting? Yeah, I think when you look at both of those situations, because I think that's the key, I think it might be tough to make a distinct claim that it's one or the other, but when you look at them both together, I think it's pretty safe that one of those two things took place. And, uh, you know, it's really kind of ramping up here. You know, the, the guy who finished second in the Millie Maker just retained an attorney today. And I think that, you know, this is, I would say spiraling out of control, but DraftKings needs to make a decision on how they want to handle this quickly. And I don't think this is ever going to see a courtroom. I think there's going to be a lot of negotiations happening between uh, all the parties involved and probably a lot of NDAs to be signed as well. But I definitely think, you know, there is a ton of smoke around what people are talking about in terms of the rules being broken. And I also think it's important for DraftKings to uh, to make a statement in the, in the sense of, hey, if we find people breaking our rules, we are going to do something about it. And because they've always kind of stood by the, we investigate things, but we don't discuss because of privacy reasons or whatnot. So we have no idea how many of these other cases they could have potentially even snuffed out because they don't tell you that. Now, here's something that's very public, and I think it's time for them to get in front of it and tell us what they found, whether even if they found that they believe she's the one that entered the contest, that's fine. But the last thing that I want is a lawyered response from DraftKings about this. I don't know if we're going to get anything non-lawyered from them, but uh, it's that's where I kind of stand on this. Yeah, and as you said, it's only getting more complicated now that the the runner-up has lawyered up here. Um, you know, just looking at the, I don't want, I hesitate to use the word evidence, but a lot of circumstantial evidence, I think, in parts of this. But the one thing to me that feels like the smoking gun, if there is one is the quarterbacks, the, that distribution. I think you can explain away a, a lot of the rest of it, but it just looks to me like this was a case of laziness in covering tracks. You know, I'm going to do these three quarterbacks with this account and these other three quarterbacks with the other account and then distribute all my other players normally. Uh, that's, to me, where it crosses beyond a reasonable doubt. Do you, do you agree that that's maybe the, the, uh, the firmest piece of evidence here? I think it might be uh, uh, I don't know about the firmest because okay. the the thing about it is you know I think that actually boils down to the collusion side of things because you're right if two people are working together the way those lineups were built it, it makes a lot of sense to 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 think like they were built together there was just no overlap of of that position um, but you also you know do we look back beyond that I mean they did this for like 17 weeks during the regular season and for me. That's like the biggest red flag here is to think that every contest that she has entered that I've looked at, she max entered and he max entered. That mm -hmm. really stinks. That's, I mean, you're talking like upwards of $6,000 a week between the two of them into this contest. So, um, you know, I think that 
the collusion angle, if they want to go there, they can look at the player pool and the way the lineups are built, and I think you're on to something. But I still firmly believe this is more likely a case of multi-accounting where you've got one person who's trying, who's basically exceeding the entry limits because it just doesn't make a lot of sense for two people to play that many lineups unless they're just total DFS degenerates. And I just don't think that she is. So, uh, that, I mean, that's, I, I'm a DFS degenerate and, and I didn't do that. I wouldn't do that. So, uh, it's just hard for me to believe that there's two of those type of people in the same household. Earlier this year, ESPN's Don Van Natta hosted an episode of his show Backstory, focusing on the scandals surrounding baseball greats Pete Rose and Shoeless Joe Jackson. Don joined us on Gamble On to offer additional perspective. To what extent, if at all, would you say Major League Baseball has lost the moral high ground when it comes to Rose and the Black Sox now that the league is partnering with sports books and, and making money off sports gambling, both directly and indirectly. Does, does this change anything? Well, I think it does. And one of the big uh, reasons and launching pads for this particular episode wasn't just because there was such a confluence of timing and events with Shoeless Joe Jackson and Pete Rose. It was also because of 2018, because the Supreme Court opened the floodgates to legalize gambling across the country, and all these states are now coming online we felt it just, it changed the dynamic. It changed the way we should consider Shoeless Joe and Pete Rose in light of baseball really going all in and seeing legalized gambling as a way to turbocharge fans' interest, uh, particularly young fans. Um, it's partnerships with MGM Grand, with DraftKings, uh, even Commissioner Manfred, who was so concerned about the slow pace of play and suddenly after the Supreme Court made his decision, he said, well, maybe the slow pace of play isn't such a big problem because, of course, it opens up more opportunities for in-game wagering. So all of those things uh, really, I think, should change the way we view baseball seeing gambling as the third rail, as really the the original sin. Um, And you could see why they do. You know, there were players for the White Sox that took bribes to throw a World Series. That's mm-hmm. something very serious and really undercut the confidence in the game. Uh, you can make the argument, though, that Pete Rose betting on his own team, granted, illegally with a legal bookmaker, is not seen with the same taboo today as it was seen then. And, you know, Faye Vincent, uh, the commissioner who was the deputy commissioner when the uh, punishment was accepted by Pete Rose for uh, to be banned from baseball, said in our episode, and I thought very tellingly, that now that the culture has changed in America when it comes to gambling, he thinks it's inevitable that Pete Rose will get into the Hall of Fame. And, you know, when those punishments came down, guys, last week, uh, of the general manager and the manager of the Astros and that $5 million fine, Pete Rose was trending on Twitter for hours worldwide because baseball fans were looking at the scales of justice and saying, wait a minute, no players here are getting punished, uh, just the manager and the general manager, and yet Pete Rose is now in year 31 of his ban from baseball and still on the outside looking in, is that fair? And I think that those conversations are going to continue. And judging from just anecdotally from the fans that I've heard from since Backstory has debuted this weekend, uh, I think a lot of people are in Pete Rose's corner. They feel enough is enough, 30 years is enough, and they put it up against baseball 
profiting from gambling, embracing gambling, and looking at whether there's some hypocrisy here on the part of baseball to still hold up Pete Rose as a villain. Responsible gaming is an aspect of this industry that doesn't get enough attention, although we've tried to do our part on Gamble On to discuss it periodically. In March, we had the legislative director for the National Council on Problem Gambling, Brianne Dora Shawal, on the pod. Yeah, now, Brianne, there's, uh, you know, I talked about 15 or 16 states have just legalized sports betting in the last two years, but there's another 15 or 16 states, or 20 maybe, who are looking at it closely. So if, if we're kind of talking, to a legislator right now or as aide as you do so often traveling around um you know what what states have like the best specific programs where if, if an open-minded legislator wanted to say you know how can i how can i be the best in the country what would i do you know would it be take this from this state and this from that state you know kind of your dream scenario i guess ah yes i get this question a lot and man oh man do i wish i could just copy and paste from one state and have everyone's answers um so here's the thing we need to talk about dedicating funding, protected funds for problem gambling. That needs to come in the form of research, prevention, treatment, and recovery initiatives. Massachusetts, although doesn't have sports betting at this time, did a really stellar job in their statute to make sure that all of those provisions were accounted for. So when I talk to states and say, yes, I understand it's not in the context of sports betting, but it is in the context of gambling, let's look at Massachusetts. Um, we also need to be thinking about conducting research prior to expansion and at intervals thereafter. Um, again, New Jersey um, and Massachusetts have done this, so I'd like to see that incorporated into legislation. Consistent minimum age. Um, we're all over the map, right? Who is in charge of sports betting? If it's the lottery, does that mean it's likely going to be 18? If it's casinos, 21? We really do advocate that we need to be consistent within a state. I really haven't seen one state get it completely right. Um, but again, it's about continued education and talking through these things. And then I always say, really, it's important about having adaptive regulations. If we go and garner all this research and we make all these sizable investments, if we're not able to adapt to our findings, then it was all moved. So we need to make sure we also have good sound policy that can adapt to the information that we got. Is legal betting on political elections coming to America soon? Lobbyist William Pasquale III, the son of a politician, recently weighed in. Yeah, and last, last thing, Bill, uh, you know, uh, we've talked in the podcast a few times this year about the fact that uh, the UK and Ireland in particular are fascinated with American politics and wagering on it, and they wager a lot on it. And uh, this, of course, this year is rather momentous by, by all accounts. And uh, so I, I've, I've talked to other guests about it, but um, you're the only one who has a father in the House of Representatives, so uh, Bill Percival Jr. So uh, uh, you're, you're, you're involved in state politics anyway, but obviously you know a lot personally about the uh, the national mood. Um, but what are the odds that um, an American in any state uh, can legally bet on the 2024 president's election, for instance? I think legal, this is a conversation, John, you may, I might have shared this with you, uh, that I had with Governor Christie about six or seven years ago. And he said, William, I've done a lot here. I've, I've moved online. I've moved sports, exchange wagering. He's a go, you're not doing that under my watch. Every politician I've talked to in America to date, everyone has said, no way. Now, 
I just say to folks who want to do it, just give me a call when I'm over in London. And I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll be happy to uh, check out the bet for you. I can't place it though, right, John? <laughs> so, so I don't see it happening in the near future. But I will also tell you, a year ago, this July 4th, when I was in Barcelona speaking at the World Gaming Executive Summit, I get a phone call from the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest folks who wanted to have that legalized uh, uh, for betting. And obviously the director Reebok appropriately said no, because there are no rules and regs and a, you know, a legitimate league in place, but we are betting on a host of other things. We're now betting on weather and virtual darts and virtual horse racing. So in time that may happen. And I will say this, the best way to regulate something, because you know, John, on the street, you can place a bet on whether Joe Biden has a prayer or not, right? You can do that on mm-hmm. the street. People will take that bet. Um, mm-hmm. But but the, the, the issue becomes politicians were very loathsome to get into online because they didn't quite understand that the most valuable thing for a gaming entity is the license. Nobody's going to put their license at stake. When my grandmother, God rest her soul, was alive and used to go to AC twice a week, when she heard I was involved in online gaming, she's like, Billy, you're getting involved with those dodgy players. They're just—they're fixing the 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 uh, gambling online. You think you play blackjack? They're really honest and honorable. And I said, Grandma, they are. And she goes, "You're such a fool." Well, so that's been the challenge, <laughs> and it is age specific. The older—and we have a lot of older legislators. My dad being one. The older you are, the less inclined you are to support online. Mm-hmm. Um, but then again. All Americans love sports betting. They've been doing it for years illegally. And the mm-hmm. best way to crack down on the black market and the, the uh, money laundering and all is to legalize and regulate it. And finally, on our 100th episode, we welcomed one of the industry's biggest personalities, 15-time World Series of Poker bracelet winner Phil Hellmuth. Among other topics, we asked the poker brat about the prospects for the WSOP during the pandemic. Do you think at this point that there's any kind of a realistic chance of an in-person World Series of any kind in the fall? And if not, what do you think of the idea of an online main event in the fall that maybe has a live final table? Would that be a a reasonable option, do you think? That's a great idea. I like that idea a lot because that is possible. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think what what you'd have to do is you'd have to test everybody. You'd, You'd have to put, I mean... You tell those players, hey, listen, if you're going to play this event, the final table is going to be in 14 days. It's going to be a studio in Vegas, maybe the Poker Go studio. It's already set up, and everybody has to isolate at the Aria because you guys are going to have to trust each other, you know, and then maybe – and then I think it could happen, and there will be tests. And, hey, if you're stupid enough to not – to get COVID during that time and we find out that it's because you were out at a club somewhere – then you're going to have to forfeit and finish ninth or eighth place or something. So very strict guidelines on people, very strict rules in place. And I think it could be great. Then you could have, that's a really good idea. I like that a lot. Hmm. Um, I mean, NBA is doing a bubble, right? Why can't we? Right. But so, but uh, by sort of skipping over the, the first part of the question, does that sort of suggest you don't think there's any realistic chance of, of doing a, anything more than, than something like a, a single table live Eric, this year? Eric, don't read year? into me skipping over stuff. 
<laughs> I do that too often. I, I think it's, I certainly, I think it's a great idea and I think it's completely possible to do that, especially, I mean, you have NBA games going on. We can't have one final table with nine players. So yeah, of course it's realistic. Right, right. No, but I, I guess I was asking like anything more than, than that, like doing a, an actual live World Series yeah. of any kind this fall. Do you think that's not realistic for 2020? At not this realistic. Okay. Too many lawsuits, too many people, too many criti- too much criticism. I mean, imagine the world's going to go crazy if we do that, right? We're all in a room somewhere and everybody's, what are these people doing? Blah, 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 blah. So, I mean, it just, just can't happen. And I'm also concerned about, you know, whether there'll be a 2021 World Series of Poker. Right. I'm very concerned about that. Um, 2022 seems like we'll be able to do it, that we should have some vaccines in place. But, I mean, my friends told me vaccines are, you know, no matter how much we rush, you know, always a year away, year and a half away. So I don't think we're going to have a 2021 World Series of Poker. Mm. Um, unfortunately, I, it, I mean, it'll be online, yes, but not in the real world. And on that sobering note, we hope you enjoyed this trip down Gamble on Memory Lane. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. And until then... To steal my co-host John Brennan's catchphrase, gamble on, everybody. Gamble on.